All right, gang, take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In a few minutes, we're going to start there, and we're going to jump around the whole book, because I want to introduce you to someone I like to call Joe Encouragement. Joe Encouragement. Now, I, I've shared with you, church, I, I'm not a big fan of, of, of reading. I'm not a big reader. Uh, I like to research, and I like to study, uh, but I, I rarely sit down and read a book from cover to cover. Uh, when I do, it's usually a, a famous person. It's someone who has excelled in what they do. Uh, I've read books on professional athletes, uh, businessmen and women, entrepreneurs. Uh, I've read books on pastors. Uh, because in my mind, you know, whether it's an athlete, uh, even a minister, uh, it could be a family, it could be someone I know, a local person here in our community. If they've excelled in what they've done, I want to learn from them. They actually challenge me to, to give it my all, to, to, to work hard and, and try to be the best that I can be. And what's interesting with almost every one of these stories that you read or come in contact with or hear or see on television, that sort of thing, in almost every instance, they had a good reason to quit. Uh, now they're at the top of their profession. Uh, now they're good at what they do. Now they may have worldwide recognition like Michael Jordan or... LeBron James or Tiger Woods and the likes, uh, but they all had a good reason to quit. They had a physical ailment. They had some kind of um, economic or social hur socioeconomic hurdle that many would have argued was too difficult to overcome. Uh, maybe they had uh, an illness. Maybe they had a problem in their family. Maybe they were, they were poor. Maybe they were uneducated. It, it, in every instance, many of the people we celebrate their excellence, they had a good reason to quit. But in every instance... They can point to someone who encouraged them. They can point to someone in their circle of influence that was their cheerleader, that stood behind them and said, you can do this, and I'm here to help. I love people like that. Let me ask you and begin with a very simple question. Who encouraged you? Who encouraged you? Uh, I went to school about 10 and a half hours from where I grew up. And I'm telling you, when the athletes arrived at that dorm about a month before college classes actually began, that was a lonely, desolate place. And I, for the first time in my life, experienced homesickness like I have never known. And I would make that long-distance phone call at a payphone. Remember those? Some of you don't even know what a payphone looks like. But I could drive my truck there in Chattanooga up into this gas station, and there was this uh, payphone that was really short on a pole, you could drive up to it and you could use it. And I have one of those calling cards. Remember an MCI calling card or a Bell South calling card? And you had to dial like, you know, 150 numbers before you finally got through. Um, and my father or my mother would encourage me to hang in there, to stick it out. It was going to pay off. When we started this church 23 years ago, it was very, very difficult in those early years to, to, to gain a crowd, to, to, to build a ministry. And, and my wife became my cheerleader. And I'm so thankful after 27 years of marriage to Amy, or almost 27, uh, that she is my number one encourager. Everybody that's ever accomplished anything that's worth doing had a reason to quit but thankfully had someone to encourage them. Let me show you a picture. This guy's name is Eric. There it is. Eric, and I have trouble with the last name, Eric Weinmayer. Eric Weinmayer, okay? Eric Weinmayer is one of only 1,200 people in the history of man to reach the summit of Mount Everest, which is the highest point on the globe. Uh, this young man, as a mountain climber, 
ascended Mount Everest with a team. You know, that's how they do it. Nobody climbs it alone. His team reached the summit on May 25th, 2001. Now, since May 25th, 2001, this young man has completed what they call the seven summits, which is climbing the highest point on all seven continents around the globe. His story has encouraged tens of thousands of people around the world because he wrote a book about climbing Mount Everest. And oh, by the way, the reason his story is so encouraging is because Eric is blind. Eric credits his team of encouragers to getting him to the summit. Last time we learned how not to encourage. Believe it or not, there are some well-meaning people who try to encourage that just go about it all the wrong, in all the wrong ways. This time we're moving forward to the book of Acts. Today I'm going to teach you how to encourage, but listen, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not as easy as some of you think. It has nothing to do with pom-poms has nothing to do with custom-made t-shirts. It has everything to do with sacrifice and vision. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to learn about a man named Barnabas. Now, when I was in high school, we kind of had a little code name for people who excelled at what they did. If you were the star football player on the team, we called you Joe Football, right? He's Joe Football. Check out the medals on his, on his jacket. Uh, if you were strong in academics, we called you Joe Student. Um, if you were kind of, you know, smooth with the girls, we called you Joe Cool, all right? Uh, I want to introduce you today from Acts chapter 4 to what I'm going to call Joe Encouragement. Joe Encouragement was a gifted encourager. I'm not simply going to show you one example. I'm going to show you multiple examples. He was a gifted encourager. He actually kept men and women on their feet. He kept them going. People all around you are looking for positive people, and God knows the world needs many, many more. Now, to give you some idea of the background to Acts chapter 4, the church has just begun. It is in its infancy. There's not a lot of direction. There's not a lot of knowledge. There's just a ton of drive. There's just a ton of spirit, a ton of desire. Everybody came together, and one of them was a man named Joseph. The disciples changed his name, as you'll see, to Barnabas. Read with me uh, verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Luke is the author here, the same guy that wrote the biography called Luke. And Luke writes, all the believers were in one heart and mind. That's what made the church so strong in the first century. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Look, there is no stronger church than a church where everybody's on the same page. Now, look, we do a lot of different things here at Grace, and you can serve in a lot of different ways, and, and we try to have our fingers in a lot of different ministries, but... The one thing we're about, Grace Community Church, is showing people a better way of life in Christ. And this church is stronger when everybody buys in. So the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Instead, they shared everything they had. Okay, now many of you know this about the early church. They shared everything. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, if I owned a spare piece of land, I might sell that land and give the money to people who needed it. Now, Perhaps the reason they did this was because Jesus just a few weeks earlier had said, hey, I'm leaving now, but I'm coming back. And they thought, why do we need all these possessions if Jesus is coming back to take us with him? Now, listen, church, we don't talk about it often enough, I fear, 
But the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. It inspired these men and women to hold very loosely to their possessions, and it should inspire us to do the same. Because he could return before I finish, finish speaking today. He could return before you go to sleep tonight, and it ought to impact our lives. Keep reading. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Remember, church, it was 300 years before the church had a Bible. For 300 years, the church excelled based upon the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. The apostles continued to testify with great power as to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Verse 34, that they were, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Watch verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field and owned, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Joe encouragement. The man's name was Joseph. The disciples, based upon who he was and how he lived, changed his name to Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. Now, why was Joseph so encouraging? Turn ahead in your Bible to Luke, I mean to Acts chapter 11. Go to Acts chapter 11. I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse number 19, the Bible says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, you remember in Acts chapter 7, we have the record of the very first church martyr, a young man named Stephen, whom Saul, incidentally, later became Paul, Saul presided over his execution. When Stephen was martyred, the church scattered. In fact, one of the epistles in the latter part of your New Testament is 1 Peter. 1 Peter begins by addressing the letter to the Christians who were scattered. They call that the great diaspora, the great dispersion of the body of Christ. Once he was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent Barnabas. Here he is again. Okay, let's find out what makes him so special. Listen to the description that follows of Barnabas. Verse 23. When he arrived and he saw what saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Verse 24, he was a good man. Look, there is not much higher praise in my estimation, especially if you grow up in South Georgia, for someone to call you a good man. He's a good man. He was generous and kind. We already know that. He sold a piece of land and gave the money to help the poor. Mar uh, Barnabas was not just merciful. You see, there are two gifts in the New Testament, two gifts present in the church. Mercy, which feels someone's pain, but encouragement, which also acts on it. That's what we're going to talk about today. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Let me explain very quickly how this works. 
The New Testament describes spiritual gifts that are given by God's Holy Spirit to every follower of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 8, you can read about the gift of encouragement. Barnabas likely had the gift of encouragement, but notice based upon the passage how it works. He's full of the Spirit because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. The gift then comes along with the Spirit, and the Spirit encourages through Barnabas. Why? Because he was a man of faith. There is a connection between the Spirit in the Christ follower and the level of your determination, commitment, and faith as to how encouraging you can be. So here's what we know about Barnabas. Barnabas was generous. We read about that in chapter 4. Uh, later, he teams up with Paul, and they become one of the greatest missionary teams the church has ever known. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, they heal people, and they do miracles, and people thought they were Greek gods. They thought, they thought Paul was Zeus, and they thought Barnabas was Hermes. Uh, interestingly enough, later in their, in their journey, they split up. In fact, we'll read about that in just a moment. I want to point out to you two characteristics of an encourager that are demonstrated by Joe Encouragement, okay? Here's number one. An encourager's action is sacrifice, not symbolism, okay? Turn back to Acts chapter 5. Go back to Acts chapter 5. An encourager's action is sacrifice, not symbolism. It will always be easier to talk the talk than it is to sacrifice for the walk. It will always be easier to give speeches, long-winded speeches, trying to encourage someone than it is to actually get down with them, come alongside to aid or help and sacrifice in order to do it. Remember Job's three friends from last time? They gave long-winded speeches, very symbolic of their knowledge and their spirituality. Listen, church, we got plenty of that in the church in this community. We've got plenty of long-winded, symbolic gestures of spiritual depth and maturity. God give us a church full of people who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to act in encouragement. An encourager's action is sacrifice, not symbolism. Here's the way James puts it. In James chapter 2, he writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, symbolic gesture, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? That's dead faith. He goes on. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Listen, church, it'll always be easier to put on a funny hat, make a sign and go to a march. It'll always be easier to get a custom printed t-shirt and be part of a crowd or a protest than it is to get down in there and sacrifice in order to encourage. Barnabas didn't simply talk the talk. He didn't simply make grand spiritual symbolic gestures. He walked the action of sacrifice. Let me give you a good example. When an when a encourager sacrifices, most likely he or she is sacrificing his time first. It's not that encourager's time is not valuable. Barnabas's time was every bit as valuable as your time or mine. But they're usually willing to make time for others. Besides, true encouragement, listen church, isn't a one-shot deal. 
It isn't a one-shot deal. It takes time. They're not only going to sacrifice time, they're going to have to sacrifice their own agenda. And this is why I think so, why encouragement has become so few and far between in modern culture is because man's agenda has become an idol to him. I mean, my plans for the lake on the second Sunday in September, why, nothing better come before that. Uh, my plans for the money in retirement, well, nothing better come before that. Uh, my agenda, my list of priorities, that's become an idol in America. A true encourager whose action is sacrifice, not only is willing to sacrifice some of his time or her time, but also her agenda. And then resources, resources. Um, one of the most rewarding parts of my work is connecting someone in the church who has a need with someone in the church who has the resources and is willing to make the sacrifice to meet that need. Man, when I see that happen, and I don't get to see it often enough, but when I do, man, I just want to stand back and say, whoa, go God, that is awesome. That's the way encouragers are. In contrast to Barnabas, whose supreme action was sacrifice, let's look at another couple in chapter 5 whose supreme action was symbolism. Their names, Ananias and Sapphira. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, there was a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, who also sold a piece of property. Now, remember, Barnabas would have gotten some cheers when he sold the property and brought the money to the apostles. People would have known. Word would have gotten out. They'd have been thinking, wow, man, that Barnabas is something, man. This guy, he's, he's, he, he's got it together. So Ananias and Sapphira say, we could do the same thing. So they go sell their piece of property. But when they sell it, they start counting the money. Man, that's a lot of money, babe. I mean, be a little excessive to give it all. I mean, think what we could, what, what if we just like did half? Think what we could do with even half. Keep reading, verse two. So with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. If you keep reading, you find out, but he led them to believe that was all of it. Look, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not their greed. It was their hypocrisy. They cherished symbolism. This is really going to look good to our neighbors. Man, I'll bet they ask me to lead a small group when I give this. They might ask me to be an elder in the church when I give this. Their supreme sacrifice or their supreme motivation was symbolism, while Barnabas and any encourager is sacrifice. See, the church of all places ought to be a place where people act, not talk. Look, I've had it up to here with churches who talk. I'm so tired of churchy people. Let me just be honest. Every now and then I do a wedding or I go do a funeral or I'm a part of some other group or body of Christ. And I don't mean to be critical, but for God's sake, can you give us some real followers of Jesus Christ? Not just people who know how to eloquently talk. And the symbolism of quoting the verses. One of my favorite things that happens is when I'm talking with people and they don't know I'm a minister. And they start pontificating on scripture to kind of show me how knowledgeable they are. And I have to jump in and correct them. No, that's not Isaiah 56. It's Isaiah 53. Oh, and then they go down the road and I say, well, no, that's not Matthew 4. That's Matthew 6. No, no, that's not James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. That's John, the disciple Jesus loved. God, give us more men and women who are real, who are authentic, who are honest, who get down and get dirty because they're willing to come alongside somebody and encourage them. We should be performers, not pretenders, church. Too often with our eloquent and our frequent, go, I wish you well, be warm and be well fed. I'll pray for you. We pretend to be Barnabas, but we're really Ananias 
and Sapphira. Encouragers, you see, are active. To know a need is to have them act on it and not wait for someone else to step up. That's number one. Here's number two. An encourager's focus is always potential, not problems. See? An encourager's focus is always potential, not problems. Turn to Acts chapter 9. I'll give you a couple of good examples of this. You remember I told you last week that there's no such thing as a squeaky clean circumstance in which to meet a need? Remember? There's no such thing as a squeaky clean marriage, a squeaky clean family. There's no such thing as a squeaky clean circumstance in which to meet a need. Every time, if you're going to step up and try to meet someone's need, there's going to be some problem with their choices or problem with their decisions or problems with their family or problems in their marriage. This church would help no one if we waited for squeaky clean circumstances in which to do so. There are none. That's why encouragers know better than to focus on the problems with people, the problems with missions, the problems with organizations, the problems. They focus instead on the potential. Zig Ziglar has a, a statement. He made a statement. He said, I've got one of the most valuable things a person can have. I've got a friend who encourages me. He goes on to say, I've got a friend who's so encouraging that he'd go with me after Moby Dick in a rowboat and he'd bring along the tartar sauce. If you got an encourager in your life, you have something extremely valuable because an encourager focuses on your potential and not all of your problems. Let me give you two examples of this. First one from Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 26, okay? Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, who is he? Well, if you read early in chapter 9, we're talking about Saul, S-A-U-L. Saul, the persecutor of the first century church, the man who in Acts 7 presided over the stoning death of Stephen, the first martyr, has been converted. He is now a follower of Christ. You can read about it for yourself later. Verse 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join up with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. When, when Barnabas looked at Saul, he didn't see all the problems associated with Saul's past. He saw the potential. I believe it was the encouragement of Barnabas that touched Paul and made him the author of more than half of your New Testament. I wonder if Saul, later renamed Paul, would have aspired to such greatness in the first century church with the writing of the New Testament and the churches he set up as a missionary if it weren't for someone like Barnabas to put his arm around him and encourage him. Think about the stories you know in the Bible. Back in the book of Exodus, other people saw the Egyptian army driving God's people to the sea. You know what Moses saw? He saw the mighty hand of God and watched the waters part. Other people saw giants in the land, but Joshua and Caleb, they saw the promised land. Other people saw Goliath, but David, a shepherd, saw a kingdom and a cause. Other people saw just a little boy's lunch, but Jesus saw an all-you-can-eat buffet of fish and chips. And here, other people saw problems associated with Saul, but Barnabas saw his potential. Question, church, what do you see? What do you see when you look at your sister-in-law and their money problems? What do you see when you look at your teenager? What do you see when you look at our government? 
What do you see when you look at this church? What do you see? The problems or the potential? Let me give you another example. Go to Acts 15, and I'll wrap this up. Go to Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas become partners in missions. They started a lot of churches. In Acts 15, verse 36, if you'll turn there, they decide to go back and revisit some of these churches. Verse 36 says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Well, Barnabas wanted to take John, who's also called John Mark, uh, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued to work with them in the work. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took John Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas had traveled together for a very long time. They had taken John Mark with them on their first missionary journey, but halfway through, he ran home to mama. It was too tough. Now Barnabas, like he had put his arm around Saul earlier, wants to put his arm around John Mark and say, hey, come with us. Uh, you deserve a second chance. Saul says, no, he'll just, he's dead weight. He'll just disappoint us like he did the first time. The disagreement is so sharp that the greatest missionary team ever splits, and God, just like God, takes two missionaries and comes up with four. Paul hooks up with Silas, and they keep going. And Barnabas becomes a missionary with John Mark. Barnabas, like so many of you who are gifted encouragers, was, quote, called alongside to aid or assist whenever a problem presented itself. Listen, let me give you a relationship tip. In your marriage, if you're an employer and you have people who work for you, uh, if you're part of a team and you're the leader, if you serve in Kids Jam as a team leader among the teachers, let me give you a quick relationship tip. Learn to make people climb over your encouragement in order to disappoint you. If you will encourage them so often and so hard and so sacrificially, if you'll see the potential rather than the problems, and you'll drive and encourage and push them to excel, there are a lot less chance they'll ever disappoint you. Heap on the encouragement so highly they have to climb over it in order to disappoint you. Here, let me tell you a quick story about this man. That man's named Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce is a revolutionary minister, evangelist, leader, and missionary of the 20th century. From the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Bob Pierce was the leader and founder of, a, of an organization called World Vision. I'm old enough to remember the magazine, World Vision magazine. Uh, World Vision was Compassion International before Compassion International was ever thought of. Many of you are involved in Compassion International. World Vision created the paradigm, kind of built the formula to make that work. They reached the world through medicinal outreach. Well, that man died of leukemia in 1978. In the months before he died, he lived in constant pain, and he had trouble sleeping at night. Before he died, he had one wish. He wanted World Vision to fly him to Borneo so he could meet a famous missionary that had partnered with World Vision for two decades named Borneo Bob, is what they called him. 
His plane landed in Borneo. They met up at the mission, and the two men greeted one another. They had only corresponded at that time via letters and word of mouth. They had never seen one another face to face. They walked through the mission, and they gave thanks to God because what God was doing. They saw needs being met. They celebrated. They felt good together. And they came down by the river, and there was this young lady lying on a mat in the mud. And she looked obviously uncomfortable. Bob Pierce asked Borneo Bob, well, what's her story? Well, she was dying of cancer. When he found that out, he said, why is no one taking her to the clinic to give her what she needs? And Borneo Bob explained she was a jungle girl. She was born and reared in the jungle. The, 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 the little time she has left, this is where she wants to be. So Bob Pierce walked over and sat down in the mud next to this young lady by the river. She couldn't understand his prayer, but he began to pray. He began to pray. She sat silently, and when he ended, she began to speak in her own native language. Now, Bob Pierce couldn't understand it, so it had to be translated. And what she said over and over was, if only I could sleep again. If only I could sleep again. And Bob Pierce began to weep. And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out his prescription medication that was to help his pain and to help him sleep. And he handed it to Borneo Bob, and he said, make sure she has as many of these as she needs. Now, at that moment, he knew he was at least 10 days to 14 days to getting to Singapore where he could have that prescription refilled. I told you, he died of leukemia, and in the months preceding his death, they were horrible on his body. He knew for 10 solid days at least he wasn't going to sleep, and the pain was going to be almost unbearable. Now, look, I didn't know Bob Pierce. He died when I was a little kid. But I'd like to think that during those 10 days before he could get his prescription refilled, he laid in bed during those sleepless nights and gave thanks to God for the privilege of encouraging someone who was in need. Encouragers do that. They sacrifice rather than make grand symbolic gestures. And they spot potential and focus on it rather than identifying the problems. You want to encourage that's what it's going to cost you. And look, church, there aren't enough staff members or board members or involved people in this church to do it all. We want you to engage with us in this meaningful ministry of encouragement. Today, I've told you how to do it. God help you put these principles into practice. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the encouragers in my life. I thank you for people, coaches, student ministers, pastors, parents, teachers, and now my wife, who looks beyond my faults, beyond my problems, and highlights my potential. Father, I thank you that so many have been willing to sacrifice for me. I pray, Father, you would incur, in turn encourage me to sacrifice for others. Make us a church of encouragers. Father, you have plenty of spiritual people out there. I think what your church needs is more encouraging, sacrificial potential seeing people. I pray these things because of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.